Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I promised you that I would have another follow-up to our Space Suits episode, which published on Monday, and this is it. So, on Monday's episode, we looked at the early history of spacesuits, from the era of flight suits before the space race, to the suits worn by cosmonauts and astronauts, uh, up to the beginning of the Apollo program. And I want to mention a couple of things before we continue. One is that the Soviets uh, stopped using flight suits for a while in their Soyuz capsules uh, when they were first doing those. They decided to allow cosmonauts more freedom of movement and so they weren't wearing pressure suits and uh, and and you know rescue suits for a couple of missions. They did have a suit that was a a, a more advanced version of the Burkut suit that was used for the first Soviet EVA which was only used uh, between two Soyuz missions where the two capsules docked with each other and the uh, that cosmonauts were able to meet one another when um, when they launched two missions in close succession. Beyond that, they went without pressure suits until there was a tragic accident in which there was a depressurization, a rapid depressurization incident that uh, resulted in the death of all three cosmonauts aboard a mission that then prompted the USSR to have a new requirement for the Soviets to to wear a pressure suit on the way up. And that became the, the so-called Cosmos, or so-called K. And that basic suit has been in use ever since. So it's a, a pressure suit that's meant to be worn inside a spacecraft, particularly during critical elements, like if you are taking off or landing. Not necessarily... Uh, in just the normal operations, once you're out in space, you can get out of the suit. But uh, yeah, that's still to this day, the suits that are being used by Russia, no longer the Soviet Union, obviously. Another thing I wanted to mention is that while the space suit evolved from the flight suit, I don't mean to suggest that flight suits stopped evolving in that process. Uh, they definitely kept evolving over time. So we had separate branches of evolution here. And the flight suits of today are incredibly sophisticated and in some ways similar to spacesuits, but not identical. And I also mentioned a, a couple of materials in that previous episode, like Nomex, uh, but I didn't really go into detail about what that is. So Nomex is a proprietary material that the company DuPont developed in the 1960s, and it is similar in many ways to nylon, but it's a little more rigid. And most importantly, it is fire and heat resistant. So it's been used in uniforms and outfits meant for all sorts of folks who work in dangerous environments and situations like race car drivers, uh, firefighters and astronauts. Nomex is a polymer, which is a type of long chain molecule where you have the same repeated units chained together over and over and over again. But it's a special kind of polymer. It's called an aromatic polyamide polymer. And you might think that means this fabric must smell nice, but it's not that kind of aromatic. 
In chemistry, aromatic means that the molecules in the chain connect as a series of rings rather than as a straight line of atoms that are chained together. And the word polyamide means that these strings of molecules connect together to form chains of these chains. And the molecular structure of Nomex makes it a fairly tough material. In fact, Kevlar, which was also developed by DuPont, is a type of aromatic polyamide, although it is in many ways very different from Nomex. But it shares some of the same molecular structural components. So, Nomex has some interesting properties. One is that Nomex will burn if it is exposed to a heat source and, you know, there's oxygen and all that kind of stuff. If the triangle is there, Nomex will burn. But if it is removed from a heat source, then Nomex will just stop burning. Thus, it is is flame resistant. It's not flame proof, but it is flame resistant. Uh, Also, it doesn't conduct heat very well. So a suit of Nomex can serve as a layer of protection against heat. All right, so let's get back to our story. So as I mentioned in our last episode on this situation, on this subject, I should say, the spacesuits developed for the Gemini or Gemini project were intended to serve as a sort of stopgap for the early part of the Apollo program. Uh, There were planned missions that would test various elements of the Apollo spacecraft and the launch vehicles and spacesuits and all that kind of stuff. And some of the early ones would not involve going beyond orbit or exiting the capsule. So in other words, the Apollo program, while the goal was to get to the moon, it's not like we were supposed to be aiming straight for the moon right at the get-go. It was all in stages so that we could learn more, use what we learned to build upon that, and then continue from there. So the A1C spacesuit, which was based off the Gemini or Gemini G3C model suit, was to serve for this first block of Apollo missions, also known as Block 1. Now, I think I might have said that it was based off the G4C suit in Monday's episode. And if I did, that's totally a mistake on my part. That's on me. The G4C suit was the Gemini suit that was designed for astronauts to go on spacewalks, on extravehicular activities or EVAs. The G3C suit had fewer layers than the G4, and was slightly more maneuverable as a result of that. And it was only intended to be used inside a spacecraft. It wasn't rated to be used outside. So the A1C was similar in design to that G3C. The original first mission had the designation of AS-204. And it was supposed to see Gus Grissom, who had actually played a really big part in the development of spacesuits, and Ed White and Roger B. Chaffee, test the Apollo capsule in Earth orbit in a mission that was planned to last up to two weeks. But tragically, during a launch simulation test, there was this intense fire that erupted inside the capsule, and all three astronauts were strapped in in the capsule, and so they all three died as a result of this. The A1C suit was made out of nylon, which kind of lacked the the heat and flame resistance that you would find with Nomex. And it appeared as though the astronauts had attempted to follow emergency procedures to open the hatch of the capsule to escape, but they were not able to do so. The intensity of the fire kept the rescue crew at bay for several crucial minutes. Uh, And this was exacerbated by a fear that that fire could potentially lead to 
an explosion, perhaps even involving the launch vehicle in addition to the capsule itself. So this was a terrible tragedy. In the wake of that loss, NASA canceled the rest of what was supposed to be the Block 1 crewed missions, as in the missions with crews in them. When I say crewed, I do mean C-R-E-W-E-D, not crewed as in C-R-U-D-E. The A-1C suit would never see use in outer space. And from that tragedy, NASA saw the need to make sure that the future spacesuits provided better protection against heat and fire. The second block of Apollo missions would need suits designed for extravehicular activity, because, again, the goal was to go to the moon and to get out and walk around. So these suits would consist... I mean, it really depends on how you look at it, but two main components. But honestly, that's you could you could argue that the spacesuit was two components or you could argue it was lots of them. But you had the pressure suit assembly or the PSA and you had the portable life support system or PLSS, which is also known as the backpack because it was worn that way collectively. This entire getup was called the Extravehicular Mobility Unit, or EMU. But we can break this down even further. So let's get to talking about these different components, what made them up, all these different layers, because there's a lot to go through. First, you had the underwear. Now, as one source put it, it was, quote, heavy-duty space boxer briefs, end quote, that were also, (laughs) and I quote, highly absorbent. And they had a urine collection component to them, which I will get to a bit later because, who boy, when you think about the people who pioneered space travel and you realize some of the stuff they had to go through, you really get a different kind of appreciation for some of their, let's, let's call it sacrifices, you know, as far as comfort <laughs> and sanitation go. Next came an LCG, or liquid cooling garment. So this undergarment suit was made out of nylon, and it used water in clear plastic tubing to cool the astronauts. So imagine a suit that has this this tubing. It's kind of like a a water-cooled PC in a way. You have this system of tubes that, that transports water all over the body of the astronaut in order to carry heat away from the astronauts. So the air-conditioned suits of the Mercury and Gemini eras really failed to keep astronauts at a comfortable temperature. It became clear that astronauts were putting forth a lot more effort in their activities in space and generating a lot more heat. And then the fact that these suits were so good at insulating meant that heat would get trapped in there, as, as well as the heat of just the various electrical components inside the suit. That was adding to it and air conditioning just wasn't cutting it. So the new system would circulate water through these tubes under the suit to carry body heat away so that the astronauts didn't get too hot and sweaty. Obviously, sweating was a problem too, because if you're wearing a helmet, that sweat can start making the helmet fog up, and then you've also got water vapor issues, so this was all necessary stuff. Connected to the LCG was a bio-belt, which is made out of a, a, a material called cotton duck. It's it's kind of like uh, canvas, like heavy canvas. It feels kind of like that. And the belt included pockets in which the various sensors and tools that were used to, to monitor astronaut health were located. 
these included signal processors to handle stuff like an ECG signal or an electrocardiograph signal and cables connecting the sensors to the equipment in the belt uh, had to be snapped on to the LCG underneath with other sensors making direct contact with the astronauts. And next came a pressure suit called the Integrated Thermal Micrometeoroid Garment, or ITMG, which was made up of three major layers. The innermost layer was made of a lightweight nylon, and it included vents, um, the middle layer was neoprene coated nylon, which was designed to keep pressure on the astronaut to help them manage the forces of acceleration without blacking out and was, uh, you know, kind of a, an airtight sort of layer. The outermost layer was a tougher layer of nylon designed to restrain the pressurized layers so that they didn't balloon out and restrict movement too much. Remember, there's no pressure out in space. So if you have a lot of internal pressure in your system, it's naturally going to expand in an environment of low pressure. So this was meant to curtail that a little bit. The ITMG also had integrated boots. So it was kind of like footy pajamas, but for space. Then there were uh, interwoven layers of mylar and dacron that went on top of this. So mylar is a type of polyester film also known as biaxially-oriented polyethylene terephthalate. And I feel like Daffy Duck trying to say all that. And I know I butchered it. The, this material has some really useful properties. Uh, it's got a really high melting point. It's got really good tensile strength. And it is an electrical insulator. Those are all very useful. And it can also serve as an effective thermal reflector, meaning it can reflect heat as well as other types of radiation. Dacron is a type of polyester fabric also made by the DuPont company, which in fact also made Mylar. And it's a material that doesn't retain moisture, which also makes it resistant to stuff like mold and mildew. And it's often used in upholstery for furniture for those reasons. So you could very well have stuff in your home right now that's made of the same material that was part of space suits. Next came a couple of layers of a material called Kapton, K-A-P-T-O-N. And once again, the DuPont company was responsible for the development of Kapton, which is a polyamide film that can remain stable across a very wide range of temperatures, including the extreme temperatures that astronauts might experience on a spacewalk. NASA would also use Kapton in layers in various spacecraft over the years for that very same reason. Then the outermost layers had coatings of Teflon on them, and they were made not by DuPont, by a company called Kimors, which was a company that spun off from DuPont. Golly. But this was to, to protect the suit and obviously the astronauts inside the suits from scrapes. And it was also capable of withstanding incredible temperatures and was given the name beta cloth. A lot of stuff on spacesuits would be made up of beta cloth because of how uh, resistant it was to high temperatures. I've got more to say, in fact, a lot more to say about the Apollo suits, but first let's take a quick break. Okay, I gave a quick rundown on the general layers of the spacesuit, uh, but the entrance to this thing, if you needed to get into one, was uh, through the back of the suit, and there was this heavy-duty zipper that that sealed it all up. And so you would 
on earth have people helping you get into this thing because it's pretty intricate. You would have to make a lot of connections between the LCG suit. Remember, that's the one with all the little uh, water tubes in it to connect directly to this other suit that you wore on top of it. So it's not just like throwing an extra layer on, right? It's not like putting a jacket on top of a sweater. Only it would be more like if your sweater had to connect directly to your jacket so that you could get oxygen and water and that kind of stuff. So very complicated. And to get in, you needed to kind of enter with your shoulders and hips kind of aligned together and entered it more or less the same way. So you would have this this spacesuit essentially unfolded as you were getting in and moving your arms into the, the sleeves and your uh, legs into the legs and, and feet of the suit. Because remember, the suit itself does have its own integrated boots. It was tricky to do, even with help. And obviously, once you got out into space, it was going to be much trickier. Once inside the suit, the astronaut would need to connect the various elements between the LCG, the bio belt, and the ITMG, that outer suit. And that sounds like it was probably a really tricky process to me. Then the astronaut would use a long, essentially a ribbon attached to the zipper and pull the zipper up and around. Uh, so the zipper would go from the back of the neck all the way down and around the, the bottom of the crotch. So to zip up, you would have to grab this, this ribbon and kind of stretch your arms and everything in order to be able to pull that zipper up and around. You could obviously, if you had help, that would change things dramatically. But if you were doing it by yourself, it was a heck of a thing. And once in the suit, the astronaut would then put on the communications carrier assembly, a.k.a. the Snoopy cap. This was a head covering that included the communications equipment, like the microphone and headphones that the astronaut would need in order to communicate with the rest of their crew, as well as those on and mission control back on Earth. And this would plug into the main suit as well. So you would have this head covering that connected directly to the rest of the suit. Then you had a pair of gloves that interlocked with the arms of the suit. And there are actually two different sets of gloves. Uh, one set was used inside the spacecraft and had hands made of rubber. But for EVA missions, if you were to go out on, say, a, a lunar walk or a spacewalk, you would wear a totally different set of gloves that had silicone fingertips. And then the rest of the gloves were made of a fabric that was uh, a type of stainless steel called Chrome R. And the gloves also extended to cover the locking mechanism at the wrists for the, the EVA version because they wanted to make sure that the metal in that, that locking mechanism was kept insulated in case uh, otherwise, uh, when exposed to space, it might heat up or cool down too quickly and become brittle or potentially cause harm to the astronaut directly, but, you know, inside the suit. Finally, you had a pressure helmet to put on. So you already have the head covering, but then you had to put a helmet on on top of that. This was made of polycarbonate. And in the Apollo days, it was essentially like a clear bubble style helmet. When going out on the moon, the astronauts had to add in an element called the Lunar Extravehicular Visor Assembly, or LEVA, LEVA, which included a sun visor and components that would protect the neck locking mechanism from temperatures, kind of the way that the gloves had to protect the wrist locking areas. 
the helmet had the same sort of thing for EVAs. And there were also uh, extra lunar boots that you need to put on on top of your suits, integrated boots as well. So overshoes, really. So you had your specific gauntlets or gloves that you had to put on your specific overshoes you had to add to your suit. And you had this special helmet assembly that you had to add on before you would leave the uh, the lunar module in the case of a lunar landing. And I mentioned the all the connectors on the suit. Uh, the, the front of the suit actually had six different connectors uh, that would attach to different life support systems. And you might wonder, well, why do you have, you know, so many? Like, why are there six? Like, you would think, oh, you really just need maybe three or four, right? Like, you would need one for oxygen intake. You would need one to take carbon dioxide away. You would need one to help circulate the water, maybe two two to circulate the water. So now we're up to what, four? Well, then maybe you need one more for electricity, possibly, right? If you didn't have like an onboard battery, but you actually had more than that on this suit. And the reason was that the portable life support system that I'll talk about a bit later in this episode, uh, it would only work in the vacuum of space. So when you put it on before you went out onto the moon, you're on the lunar module uh, you've got your, your suited up, you've got your, your PLSS on your back. It would not provide life support until you depressurized the lunar module and then were ready to go out on the moon. So in order for you to continue to have life support, you would have uh, a connection directly to the lunar module that would provide life support to you. And you would also have connections to the PLSS at the same time. Only the lunar module would act as your life support. Once it was depressurized and you were ready to go out, then you could switch over to the PLSS and you could disconnect the connectors to your suit that were connecting you to the lunar module. So it was, you know, just an important element that was necessary in order to have this this seamless transition of life support from one source to another. On Earth, before connecting up to the spacecraft, the astronauts would actually carry with them a portable ventilator unit connected to their suits, kind of like carrying around your your own personal air conditioner in a way. This provided some oxygen and cooling capabilities, but once they were getting into the Apollo capsule, they would disconnect from these portable handheld units and then connect to the, the Apollo capsule itself to provide life support. These suits were really big. They were really bulky. They were super heavy. I mean, depending on what variation you're looking at, like the light one before you had all the extra stuff on was weighing in at around 62 pounds. Uh, That was just for the version that you would wear inside the capsule without any extra stuff on it. If you were to take an EVA, you'd be looking at weights going up to 76 pounds. If you're going all the way out to the moon with all the additional units, all the additional components, you're looking at around 180 pounds of suit you're wearing. However, keep in mind you're in space. Uh, so when you're in space space, like floating in orbit or whatever, you're in microgravity. So you're not really floating, you're falling, (laughs) but you're in microgravity. So you don't have to deal with weight so much. You have to deal with mass, but weight is not so much of an issue. And then of course on the moon, gravity is one sixth that of earth's. So while you'd be wearing a very bulky suit, it would not feel super heavy to you. 
Speaking of the moon, Neil Armstrong's suit had the designation A7L and the serial number 056. And according to the Smithsonian, the estimated cost for his suit was $100,000 at the time. That was a lot of money back then. If we were to adjust it for inflation, that would mean that the suit was more than half a million dollars to put together, which is a pretty expensive suit. You know, I mean, I've looked at some suits that are fairly expensive and said no way, but they were not in the half million dollar range. I can tell you that. Also, according to the Smithsonian, the spacesuits were hand built. They were stitched by hand with careful precision, as even the tiniest error could result in catastrophe. Obviously, you need these suits to be strong, resilient. They need to be able to keep pressure. Uh, They needed to not allow oxygen to just escape the suit. So it was critically important that all these elements were put together with the utmost precision. Now, these suits were the most sophisticated spacesuits to date. And on the front part of the torso, like I said, there were those six connectors that related to life support. There was uh, a water connector, an electrical connector, and then you had the four gas connectors for oxygen, which, as I mentioned, were doubled up so that you could go from the lunar module life support system to the PLSS system. Uh, It also had lots of pockets. Like, I like to think that the first astronaut to try one of these on yelled, it has pockets, because there were pockets for like everything, very specific pockets. Like there was a specific pocket for pencils and pen lights and a specific pocket for scissors. And there even was a pocket for sunglasses. Uh, It had a pressure relief valve on the left arm of the suit and a pressure gauge on the right arm. Fancy stuff. But that's the lowdown on the Apollo suits. And now we need to talk about something else. A delicate subject. One that ended up being critically important. uh, And it's about when you have to go to the bathroom. See, The Gemini missions were, in part, a stepping stone toward the Apollo missions that would take astronauts to the moon. And those trips have to last a good long time. The Gemini missions, like the longest one, lasted almost two weeks. Sooner or later, you gotta go to the bathroom. But when you're wearing a spacesuit, like the ones I've described, and you're in a tight capsule that doesn't have a lot of space... And it can take a lot of time to get in and out of that spacesuit. And also, this capsule, by the way, does not have a toilet. How do you go to the bathroom? The answer, as it turns out, ain't pretty, folks. So uh, I'd say prepare yourselves, but I'm not sure anything's going to prepare you for what's to come. So let's let's take a step back before we get into it, because way back when Alan Shepard was getting ready to go into space to become the first American in space, not the first person. Yuri Gagarin had done it already for the Soviet Union a month earlier. But when he was ready to go into space and be the first American in space in a Mercury space capsule, and remember, Mercury was just before Gemini, which again was before Apollo. He was sitting there uh, on his back inside the capsule on top of the launch vehicle on the launch pad when he really had to go pee. Now, this mission was only supposed to last 15 minutes from launch to touchdown, which meant that everyone at NASA figured there'd be no need to worry about this kind of thing because 
It's 15 minutes. You can hold it for 15 minutes. But Shepard had been strapped into his suit and been in the Mercury capsule for several hours while waiting for these various delays to clear up where, you know, the launch had been set back a couple of hours. And making matters worse, uh, he had had four cups of coffee the morning of his launch. So naturally, as those delays began to pile up, he began to feel the call of nature. And the call was urgent. He had to pee. Well, there was no getting out of the suit. Because as tiny as the Apollo capsule was, which carried three astronauts in it at a time, the Mercury, which was a single astronaut capsule, was particularly tiny. Essentially, it was, you know, a chair surrounded by electronic components in very tight quarters. There was no getting out of the capsule, at least not without scrapping the whole mission. So he just, you know, decided he had to go with the flow as in he needed to pee in his suit. Actually, he actually had to request permission to do this because no one had really thought about this yet and they weren't entirely sure that this was going to be safe to do. I mean, you're talking about a suit that also has components that attach to life support. There's a lot of electronic equipment there. So this was a new (laughs) and urgent problem Uh, And reportedly, an engineer named Gordon Cooper was on the receiving end of this request, which will become important later. And this is the sort of stuff in history books that you tend to not discover. They tend to leave this part out. But he got permission to see to matters, and he wet himself before his flight because he had no other option. And keep in mind, he was seated with his, you know, his back is is to the ground, right? Because you're seated in a, uh, where you're, you're facing straight up. So it all just kind of pooled behind him. Yeah, not pleasant. Well, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how NASA decided to try and tackle this potentially crappy problem. But first, let's take a quick break. So what was NASA's solution to this problem after Shepard's historic and damp flight? Well, they created a urine collection device. So the astronauts at that time were all male. So the idea was just kind of secure a a condom style containment bag, you know, around the downstairs mix up area. And John Glenn on his mission, generated more than two pints of pee in four hours. Impressive. But wait, there's more. For the final Mercury mission, astronaut Gordon Cooper was to be in orbit for more than 24 hours. And so NASA designed a system that included the in-suit urine collection bag that was in turn, going to eventually be incorporated into the heavy-duty space boxer briefs that I talked about before. And extending from this bag was a plastic tube that ended in a quick connector. Uh, There was a fly on the suit, like a zipper fly on the front of the suit. So Cooper could unzip his suit, pull out this tube with the connector on the end of it, then attach a line with the... Uh, other half of the connector, 
to it. This line also had a pump attached to it. Cooper could activate that pump by hand, and then he would pump the pee out of the in-suit bag through this line to a collection bag, and then he was supposed to put the collection bag under his seat because NASA was really interested in learning more about that pee. And that was the first space toilet, sort of. It was called the Mercury Atlas 9, or MA-9, urination system. Glamorous, right? And you might remember earlier in this episode, I said that Gordon Cooper was the person who was actually on the other end of the communications channel when Al Shepard had to request permission to pee in his suit for that first Mercury mission. Well, on Cooper's flight, Shepard was the guy who was on the other end of the communications channel. And uh, he actually played a little bit of a prank on on Cooper. Shepard went to the capsule before Cooper was to board it and put a little toilet plunger in the seat of the capsule with a tag attached that said, remove before flight. Just kind of a a fun story of astronauts razzing each other. But the Gemini Project proved that even more thought was going to have to be put forward to this because the longest of the Gemini missions was to last two weeks in space. While NASA tried putting astronauts on a diet that would hopefully produce the least amount of solid waste, well, sometimes the best laid plans just freaking go aglay, don't they? Well, the hope was that by using these foods with a very low fiber content, they would just, you know, avoid the need for the astronauts to have that type of evacuation. They could pee into the bags, but hopefully they would not need to poop. But um, that would not be the case. Now, they did have a slightly more sophisticated urine collection device, which on casual glance, because I looked at a picture of this thing, kind of looks like a cross between a lightsaber and a set of bagpipes. And I know that sounds confusing, but just imagine a device that at one end has a condom, fits over the astronauts' operating equipment, keeping in mind that, again, at this point in history, all the astronauts were male. And then through a series of valves, the uh, there was a connection to a collections bag to to pick up all the pee. And the astronauts were meant to, to store these bags of pee under their seats or actually to use them to vent them out into space. You would actually connect the bag to a, a connector on the spacecraft, open up a channel, and the urine would vent into space and would instantly crystallize upon exiting the capsule. There's actually video footage of this where you can see the formation of the crystals as the pee is being vented out into space. So that that footage exists if you want to check it out. Anyway, for the Gemini or Gemini 7 mission, the astronauts were to be in space for nearly two weeks, and Jim Lovell and Frank Borman were the astronauts on board that historic flight. Unfortunately, despite the low-fiber diet, Lovell felt the need to go poo when there were still several days left in the mission. And so... He went like there wasn't really any real option to do anything else. So he he pooped his suit and that experience taught NASA that something else was going to need to be done for Apollo because those missions were also going to be very long to get out to the moon and come back. But if you think that that something was to include a toilet on the Apollo capsule, well, you're wrong because it was way too late in the game to figure that out. 
So instead, there needed to be some sort of equipment the astronauts could have to deal with the issue and a, an actual process for them to follow. And well, there wasn't enough space in the capsule to carry something really sophisticated. And now we come to the poop in a bag part of our podcast. Yeah, so the poop collection equipment consisted of a bag with some adhesive around the rim of the opening. So you were essentially taping the bag to your backside and creating a seal. Uh, otherwise, well, you're going to have poop fly all over the place in microgravity. And uh, spoiler alert, that actually did happen. Uh, kind of a crappy flight experience, if you ask me. Anyway, according to what I've read, the procedure for doing this involved the astronaut who needed to go to the bathroom moving to one side of the capsule, the other two being as far away as they possibly could be from the third. That was not particularly far in the Apollo capsule. Then the astronaut who needed to go would have to get out of his suit, like all of his suit, stripping down naked, which, as I'm sure you've gathered, requires a pretty good amount of work. Then he would need to adhere the defecation collection system, or, you know, the poop bag, to his posterior. The bag also included a flap of plastic, and you would put your fingers into this flap of plastic. It was kind of like, you know, like a like a plastic glove for a couple of fingers because... <sighs> okay, so there's no gravity in space, or rather microgravity. It's like you're constantly falling, so the effect to us is that we're floating weightless, right? Gravity is typically what causes the separation of poop from, you know, us when we poop. Gravity is helps us out in that matter, and uh, that meant there needed to be something there so that the astronaut could, you know, effectively using gloved fingers, make that separation happen manually. Yeah, I know this is gross. And once done, the astronaut would need to use a special antimicrobial tablet that would be inserted into this bag and broken up so that uh, the, the tablet would kill off the microbes in there. And you had to mix this, like by squishing this bag of poo and microbial tablets, or antimicrobial tablets, because otherwise the microbes in the poo might generate various gases, and that could eventually cause bags to overinflate and potentially rupture, which is super gross and dangerous. Because otherwise, microbials in the poop could start to generate various gases that could cause the bags to inflate over time, potentially to the point where they would rupture, which is a pretty big ew. So the tablets were meant to prevent that from happening by killing off the bacteria. And once all that was done and the bag was sealed and stowed away, the astronaut could go back through the process of getting back into their, their flight suit. The whole process could take upwards of an hour, and the astronauts hated doing it for obvious reasons, and they would frequently hold off for as long as they possibly could before having to give in to the call of nature. And yeah, there were incidents of rogue poo in capsules. I mean, Apollo 9 was one such mission. There are actual communication logs, no pun intended, that talk about a floating turd in the capsule, because uh, sometimes being a hero gets pretty darn gross. After Apollo, a lot of work would go into creating, you know, other systems to make it easier to go to the bathroom in space, or at least a little less unpleasant, if not actually easier. But we're not going to go into all of those, because really the only reason I wanted to cover it here 
was because it was coinciding with the evolution of the spacesuit, and the two played a part with one another. So let's get back to Apollo and cover up a couple of little brief things. The, the whole purpose of the Apollo missions was, again, to get astronauts to the moon. And that would mean that any astronaut taking a moonwalk would need to have their own life support system connected to their suit. And on board the capsule, it wouldn't be a problem. The spacecraft provided all life support. But down on the moon, the job would fall to the PLSS, or the Portable Life Support System. That is where we will pick up in our next episode to talk about the PLSS. We'll talk about the further evolution of the spacesuit, including how it then evolved into the type that was used aboard the space shuttle and the kind that's used on the International Space Station. We'll also talk about the proposals that have been in various forms of production since then and about the uh, the the proposed design of the future spacesuit, the one that unfortunately means that the Artemis program is going to be delayed by at least a year. But we'll get into that into the next episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me and let me know what those are. The best way to do that is on our Twitter account. That's Tech Stuff HSW over on Twitter. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.